do not, under any circumstances, interrupt this broadcast. They're here. Look around you. There's a spot in that room where the air is thicker. Has that waver in your daily surfaces always been there? You won't want to believe it, but they're already altering our perception and we need to fight back. You can't trust anything you see or hear or taste or touch. Trust only the thoughts you've already had before this. And smells. They can't seem to alter smells. Do not trust anything new. Do not listen to any foreign language you suddenly understand. Do not approach anything that smells like something it isn't. They spread from when we form new connections. They développe dans de nouveaux espaces. Do not open your mind. Be very still. Experience nothing. There's either a cure somewhere in what we already know, and we'll find it, or there isn't. If there isn't, adieu. The sun has gone down. It's dark outside. Nighttime has begun. But you dare not close your eyes. For in the darkness there are things unseen. Faces without eyes watching you. Nightmares exist while you're awake. No matter how much you try, you remain sleepless. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. gotta pay attention to what's going on out there. Things are changing, subtly and insidiously, as we learned from author Alex Woodrow from the tale I shared as this episode's cold open. Adieu. The Halloween season is quickly approaching, and a haunted virtual opera theater once again opens its mysterious gates. Horror and Opera is founded and single-handedly run by a one-woman horror composer and trained operatic singer, Alia. You know Alia from the great illustrations she's done for our podcast, as well as some original music she's created for us, especially in the Gold Meadow universe. The Horror and Opera venture is dedicated to exploring the best public domain classics of silent horror cinematography and bringing these classics to life by composing and scoring original operatic soundtracks to match the atmosphere of the films. Last year, Horror and Opera delivered an original and critically acclaimed rescoring of Benjamin Christensen's film, Haxon, that received an honorary designation, Projects We Love, from the Kickstarter platform along with being reviewed by horror media trendsetters like Rue Morgue and Horror News. 
This year, you're invited to celebrate the 100th anniversary of F.W. Murnau's Nosferatu, as Aaliyah is working on a truly special score to match the 1922 classic. The operatic vocals for this film will be recorded in a church with genuine chapel acoustics, and you can follow the journey and contribute to the project on her recently launched Kickstarter campaign. You can own your very own copy of a digitally restored public domain version of the film with the new original soundtrack on a cute, branded, coffin USB drive. Check the show notes to learn more about this exciting project and how you can support it via Kickstarter. Horror and Opera Nosferatu, a project you can sink your teeth into. And now, we offer, for your approval, a series of stories we hope will make you sleepless. In our first tale, we meet a couple in the midst of a disagreement. Is it a minor issue, like laundry left on the floor or unlowered toilet seats? No, this time it's a bit more serious. And as we learn in this tale, shared with us by author Douglas Smith, the woman feels like things are slowly changing. No, no, not just changing, disappearing. Performing this tale are Nicole Doolin, Mike Delgadio, and Mary Murphy. So perhaps things are slowly devolving into a void. Perhaps this is incredibly serious. Or then again, maybe it's nothing. It's nothing. This is not the first time he says this. She watches him straighten his tie in the hall mirror. So he doesn't have to make eye contact, she thinks. I fear nothing. Then I must be fearless. I don't feel fearless. Leaning on the kitchen doorframe, she hugs her faded blue dressing gown around her as if she's holding the universe together. She's staying home. Again. He shakes his head. He does that a lot lately. I mean, there's nothing out there to be afraid of. He picks up his briefcase, ready for another day. But she knows that it's not just another day. Nothing out there. Nothing. He stands by the front door of their little bungalow. Are you going into work? No. She watches his jaw muscles tighten, enjoying the clarity of predictable stimulus and response. Fine. He leaves. She hears the car pull away, feeling no less alone than when he was here. She's sorry he's angry, but he doesn't understand. He doesn't understand that he's right. She is afraid of nothing. She makes toast and coffee, taking comfort in the routine. Mundane remnants of the way her world used to be. At the kitchen table, she savors the smell of the coffee, the heat of the mug in her hand, the sharp edges of the toast in her mouth, the sound of its crunch, the sweetness of the jam. Each of her senses has become a lifeline, snaking out from her, seeking something tangible and a fading reality to which to anchor herself. Later, sitting on the sofa, she holds the phone in her lap and sips her coffee even after it's cold, delaying. Finally, she dials her parents, punching the area code that is a plane trip away. And then their number, 
as if it were a combination to a lock. Slowly, carefully, she listens, then hangs up. Yesterday it rang and rang. Today it didn't even do that. Silence. Nothing. A sense of loss fills her, but it tastes old and stale. She realizes that she lost her parents long ago, when the aura of protection they once gave disappeared. They can't save her. They couldn't even save themselves. Planning to distract herself by cleaning the house, she turns on the radio for some music, but can't find her favorite station. She picks another and starts to dust. The station fades out to nothing. Not even static. Three more stations. Same thing. She turns the radio off and stops cleaning. She thinks of sleeping but decides against it. Even her dreams are empty now. She sits and waits. He comes home at the usual time, but something has changed. What's wrong? She asks this over a dinner of leftovers in silence. Nothing. She waits. She knows. I visited my client. She knows the one on the outskirts of the city. Yes? She knows what he'll say next. They're gone. Out of business? She plays the game for his sake, pretending that the world is still normal. Gone? There's nothing there. Nothing. She looks up when he doesn't answer. He puts down his knife and fork, and she enjoys the solid click-clack they make on the kitchen table. He meets her gaze finally. He opens his mouth, but no words come out. Picking up the knife and fork again, he studies them as if unsure they're real. He shakes his head and goes back to eating. He's pretending it didn't happen. But she is beyond pretending. She saw his eyes. He knows. He goes to bed early. She stays up watching TV, flipping channels as, one by one, the city stations stop broadcasting. She keeps flipping. The last station disappears. No test pattern. No static. Just a slow fade to a blank, dead screen. She turns the TV off and sits in the dark. Sleep is not an option. She fears what she will wake to. Or that it will come while she sleeps. The clock shows that it's morning. She doesn't open the curtains. The gray that creeps around their edges is not sunlight. He should be awake by now. She listens for his morning sounds. Nothing. She rises and walks upstairs, feet silent on the worn carpet. Up here, the floor, the ceiling, the walls seem thin, insubstantial. A paleness oozes under their bedroom door. More a rejection of both darkness and light than an actual color. Leaving the door unopened, she backs away. It is too late for him. He is gone. He is nothing. She goes back downstairs and sits on the sofa. To wait. Alone. Now she is truly alone. It comes. Eating first through the corners of the room. Devouring walls and ceiling. Crawling across the freshly vacuumed carpet towards her. She realizes, as it consumes the very space around her, 
that she is the center of a dwindling ball of reality. Or perhaps, she thinks, as it draws closer, this world is simply escaping to join with it. It touches her, and she knows. He was right all along. About what she feared. It is nothing. Nothingness. Void. Nothing exists here. No light. No sound. No smell. No taste. Nothing to touch or be touched by. Only her thoughts exist here. And even they begin to flee her. Not to escape, but to join with the void. As they leave her, she feels herself joining with it as well. Soon there will be no identity, no separation from it, no her. Her last thought forms, departs. She is... Fishing is a popular pastime. It can be a relaxing way to spend your time. Floating on a quiet lake, lying dipped into the water, waiting for the fish to nibble. But in this tale, shared with us by author Ashton Lee, we meet a man who's not catching much fish lately, and that makes him anything but relaxed. Performing this tale are Peter Lewis and Matthew Bradford. So prepare your fishing rod, check the line, and don't forget the main thing. Make sure you've got bait. The low hum of the engine slowly died down as my wooden boat made it to the middle of the lake. Picking up my fishing rod that laid in it, I reached my hand inside a rusted tin can. There, I picked out a worm squirming with a liveliness that was sure to catch the attention of the fish. Stabbing it through the hook of my rod, I pulled it back and casted it out into the still waters of the lake. After the ripples from my rod settled themselves, the lake became completely calm and quiet, with only a light breeze rustling the leaves. It was quite early in the morning, so I had a bit of time to wait for a bite. But the longer I waited, the louder and more intense a certain sound got. A scratching. It was nails drowned in water running across a piece of wood. It wasn't just one, but many, all scratching at the bottom of my boat, trying to carve away at it bit by bit. As the sound grew louder, I could almost feel the vibrations coursing from the bottom of my boat to my very core. And the sound became too loud when the feeling of it harmonizing with my bones became too chilling. I quickly pulled back my rod and shifted my weight slightly to rock the boat. 
a small movement always drives them away for a little bit. When I drew back my line, however, the worm was unmoving. Dead. And dead worms are not the best bait that you can have. So I just threw the worm out into the lake and grabbed another one from my tin can, a livelier one. I repeated the process of stabbing the worm through my hook, casting it into the waters of the lake and waiting in utter silence. When the sound of scratching became too unbearable, I rocked my boat, redrew my line, replaced the worm and recast my hook. This continued on until I swore that I'd thrown more worms into the lake in one day than bodies in my lifetime. Unfortunately, today wasn't a good day for fishing. Not a single one bit my hook. It had been like this recently, but I had some fish stocked up for the upcoming days so that I wouldn't starve. If push came to shove, however, I could probably excite the lake with the bits of meat I had stocked up for the worms. As the starry night bled into the dawn sky, I started up the engine to my wooden boat again and drove it back towards my small pier. I looked down into the waters of the lake as I guided the boat. Something stared back at me, asking for its next meal. It hadn't eaten for a couple of months now, only feeding on the little bits of meat stuffed inside the worms. I tried to tell it to give me more fish, and maybe I would find something, but it only growled back in response, causing the waters of the lake to tremble. I eased my boat into the rotting pier, overgrown with plants. As bad as it looked, the boards were still stable. As I stepped onto the pier, the boards wailed under my weight, but no matter how much pressure I put onto it, I knew that they'd never snap, not when they still had some food in their bellies. I picked up the rope sprawled across the boards and tied the boat to one of the legs of the pier. My shack wasn't too far from there, only a little beyond the grassy hills in the distance. Taking my old fishing rod and a rusty tin can, I went back to my shack before the skies turned completely dark. As I approached the door, I noticed that something was awry. The chains and locks binding the door were broken, sprawled against the floor. But that didn't stop me from swinging the door wide open to reveal what was inside of my shack. Stop right there. The setting sun slightly illuminated a man aiming his rifle towards me. Who are you? I looked the man up and down. He was a little skinny, but there was some meat on his bones. Probably enough for the lake to feed on for a few months. Don't ask questions. Drop everything you have, or I'll shoot. I did as the man told me, dropping my tin can and fishing rod. The sound of the two objects suddenly dropping made the man flinch a little. Do you live out here? This is my home, yes. And it is quite rude to be suddenly breaking into it. I... I, uh... The man weakened. It seemed like he had some semblance of a moral compass. That would make things a lot easier on me. Don't worry, I won't harm you. 
I'm just an old man trying to survive from uh, them. Hmm? So, just put your rifle down, and we can talk this out, okay? The man contemplated my words for a few seconds before lowering his rifle. Okay. Sorry for that. I just, you know... I reached down to pick up my fishing rod and tin can, still keeping my eyes on the man. No, no, I understand. Ever since they came, right? The man shuddered as he recalled some memories. Yeah, I... The man quickly shook his head to stop the thoughts from coming back. Anyways, how long have you been living here? I saw you had quite a bit of food, and... It was clear this man wanted a bite of the fish. Though it would cut into my food supply, it wouldn't be a bad idea to fatten him up. Oh, the fish? Well, that's from the nearby lake. I go down to fish every day, though recently I haven't been turning up with much. I took a step into my shack... And though the man seemed worried, he stopped himself from doing anything rash. If it isn't too much to... Asking for food from the same person whose house you just broke into definitely didn't sit right with the man. So I just completed his thought for him. Of course you could have some to eat. After all, we have to help each other out during these times, the man stayed quiet as I started to gather everything to cook. After bundling a few sticks together and lighting them on fire, I brought out two skewers and stabbed them through the fish I had in my icebox. Once the flames grew big enough, I threw some logs onto the sticks. Once the fire was started, I handed the man a skewered fish. Here, cook this over the fire. The man stared at the fish a little dumbfoundedly. Don't just stare at it. Cook it. Oh yeah, it's just... How are these things unaffected by the sludge? Thankfully, I've been lucky enough to live near a lake that's been unaffected. Even the water is clean enough to drink from. And you haven't seen any of those creatures come by? No, I haven't. Seems like they actively avoid this lake for some reason. R really Putting the man's shocked face aside, I started to cook my fish over the fire. After a few seconds, the man followed suit, his face twisted into thought. Under the night sky and within the presence of a warm, crackling fire, I ate as I fattened up my precious little worm. Ah! I suddenly remembered that there was something I needed to do. What is it? Nothing. I just need to leave something out for the worms tomorrow. The worms? Yes, the worms. I need to have some lively bait to catch good fish. The man nodded slowly in understanding. As I stood up from the ground and headed back towards my shack, I noticed the man was trailing me a bit. Do you want something? No, I just wanted to learn how to fish like you. I've decided on staying here. I mean, it seems pretty safe, and there's a pretty good supply of food and water. I mean, if that's okay with you, of course. 
I looked at the man's eyes and smiled. Of course, I'd be okay with that. Just watch carefully and listen closely, okay? The man nodded his head. After entering the shack, I brought out a damp piece of cardboard. Every morning, you want a good amount of worms to act as bait. Now, cardboard attracts worms, so every day you want to get a small piece, like this, and uh, cut it up even more. Taking out the knife in my pocket, I started to cut up the cardboard into smaller pieces. After getting a bunch, I went towards the back of my shack. There was a small hole with some worms already squirming around. I threw the cardboard into the hole. Just leave it overnight, and eventually a good amount of them will build up. I'll teach you how to fish tomorrow. Does that sound good to you? Yeah, yes, of course. Thank you so much for teaching me and letting me stay here. I gave the man a light smile. Anyway, why don't we head off to sleep? We want to wake up early in the morning if we want to catch a lot of fish. The man agreed and went inside. As he disappeared from my view, I reached toward a small box that was pressed against my house. Opening it up, I quickly took the rotting pieces of meat out and threw them into the hole, letting the worms fester on them. After that, I went back into the shack as well. I asked the man where he wanted to sleep, and he told me he was fine with sleeping on the floor with his sleeping bag. As the both of us lay in our respective beds, the man suddenly started to talk. Hey, have you ever seen anyone besides me? Of course I have. Only a few have come and gone, however. Why do you ask? I was just wondering, I mean, if those creatures really avoid getting close to this lake, then isn't it like a safe haven? Couldn't we build a community here and use the lake's resources? We could... I left out how unstable the supply of fish could be and what it cost to appease the lake. We might be able to build a safe haven for people here and all survive together. It was at this point that I stayed completely silent. Well, I guess we could iron out the details tomorrow, so let's just sleep for now. Finally, the man started to drift off. Safe haven. I couldn't help but laugh to myself. Was anything here a safe haven? No. It was a prison. From the boards of the pier to the walls of my house and even the fish that we ate. It was all a piece of a greater whole. The lake. I was a prisoner to it. Letting my morality be scratched away bit by bit just to survive under its guidance. And this man, he was just another piece of bait for the lake. But first I had to prepare him, stuff him up just like a worm. So I listened to the man's breathing and heartbeat, paying attention to the rhythm. The heart of a sleeping man, the breathing of a sleeping man. I knew it all too well. I didn't know how long it passed, how long it took until the man's breathing and heartbeat was finally slow enough, quiet enough for me to stand up from my bed. My steps were careful, 
so careful to the point where even if you strained your ears as hard as you could, you'd be unable to hear anything. I thanked the shack. Its boards did not strain, did not creak. It understood what I was trying to do, and knowing it would get a piece of him as well, it kept quiet. I went towards a cabinet, and slowly wrapping my finger around the cold metal handle, I pulled it open. Inside of it was a long piece of rope, stained at certain points with either blood, sweat, grime, or tears. I grasped it and slowly approached the sleeping man. Things could not have been any more perfect. He was stuffed into his sleeping bag, wrapped up nicely already. However, I needed to restrain him even further. Under the guise of the night, I worked carefully, slowly, quietly. He needed to be alive, after all. It's the lively and squirming worms that attract the most attention from the fish. I started with his chest and arms, binding them tightly to each other. My work was quite messy, but just creating knots was enough to keep him in place. Despite all of my caution, I could sense that the man was starting to wake up as he groaned and moved. I had, however, not finished tying him up, still needing to bind his legs. But after doing this so many times, I knew how to deal with situations like this. Throw away caution, throw away quietness, just quickly finish the job. And so I did, forcing his legs into position, uncomfortable or not, and creating knots upon knots upon knots until he had finally woken up. He started to scream, yell, and thrash around, trying to undo the rope that had kept so many before him in their place. His movements were perfect. His screaming was superb. He would act as the perfect piece of bait. I couldn't wait anymore, and as the man continued to scream into the night, I grabbed my fishing rod and tin can. I went to the back of my shack, to the worms that were festering on the flesh I had fed them. They were bloated, stuffed with such tantalizing meat that I could not have the liberty of eating. The lake, however, would give just a taste through those fish. I gathered up the worms into my can, and with everything in order, I dragged the thrashing, screaming, and lively piece of bait towards the pier. The waters of the lake were no longer calm or quiet, and very distinct beats, ripples formed from the middle of the water and pushed outward, shaking in anticipation for food. I placed my bait onto the boat, causing it to rock a little, but not enough for it to capsize. Calm down there. Don't use up all your energy before we get to the middle of the lake. Where are we going? Please, let me go! Let me go! I stuffed his mouth with worms. Tears formed from the corners of his eyes as he tried to scream out. But the feeling of worms squirming in his mouth was too much. 
Though it was a little early to be stuffing my bait, I was starting to get annoyed at his screaming. He was still thrashing and jerking, which was hopefully enough for the lake. Starting up the engine to my boat, I started to drive it towards the middle of the lake. I grabbed the rope bound to the man, and after looking at his face one final time, I cast my rod. The rope was the line, the knots were the hook, and the man was the bait. The lake would consume a good chunk of him, leaving some for the fish. The fish would bloat their own stomachs, leaving scraps for the worms. The worms would excrete what they had eaten into the soil, feeding my shack. I pulled my line back after leaving him in the water for some minutes. His body was mangled beyond belief, but thankfully the sleeping bag covered most of it up. Leaving it in my boat so that I could take it back to the worms, I took my fishing rod and casted it into the lake. I received bite after bite, fish after fish, until my boat overflowed with hundreds of pairs of dead eyes. As the morning sunlight poured through the trees and onto the lake, I could hear it again, scratching. But this time, it was different. Another hand, five more fingers, five more nails, trying to carve away at the bottom of my boat, hoping to bring me down with them. I decided to return with my harvest of fish and slowly eased into the pier. I stepped onto the boards that were no longer wailing from hunger, and I started to wonder just how much longer until I've thrown more bodies into the lake in my lifetime than worms in a day. There's a famous poem which begins, If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. <laughs> yes, yes, if you can do that, then you're a lot like the man in this tale. You see, he has a very positive outlook on life. But in this tale, shared with us by author Noah Sarvey, he finds that things have suddenly become rather chaotic. Good thing he'll be able to handle it. Performing this tale are Graham Rowett, and Kristen DiMercurio. So learn a lesson from him. Stay calm, be positive, and always look on the bright side. You know... I think sleeping late is one of the greatest things in the world. I love being able to take my time and just ease into the day. No blaring alarm clock, no rush to get ready, no traffic. Instead, I 
lounge in the bed until I feel the nice warm sunshine on my face. Slowly, I stretch my shoulders and back as I yawn, then reach to the side table for my glasses. I rise and peer out the window. Another beautiful day. Sure, you'd probably roll your eyes. Believe me, I get it. None of these things used to matter much to me. I was too preoccupied with my work and all the hectic distractions in life. Now, though, I've come to see the importance of taking pleasure in all the little things. It helps a person stay positive. And positivity is the secret to my success. After all, compared to others, I'm doing pretty well. In fact, I'm doing just fine. I have a lot to be thankful for. Each morning, I like to go through a mental list of all the good things in my life. I'm healthy. I'm young. Then there's this new house. I've really found a nice place here, and I hope to stay for a long time. Being up on the hill like this, there's a great view. I can watch the whole neighborhood. I walk downstairs to the kitchen. My phone is waiting for me on the counter. I check it out of habit, and just as I expected, there's still no signal. It hasn't worked in a long time, but I don't let it bother me anymore. I like the quiet. It's so very, very peaceful now. And I've had more than enough stress lately. Yes, more than enough. I load a K-cup into the machine and flick the switch. Hazelnut cream, my favorite. And open up the pantry as I wait for the mug to fill up. Breakfast time. Should I have oatmeal today? There's a large variety pack just behind the instant soup. A Quaker Oats man smiles at me from the box, and I smile right back. Apple cinnamon would be nice. Or maybe maple flavor. It all sounds so good. <laughs> I really can't go wrong. I remember the jar of strawberry jam. I found it the other day in one of the cabinets. That's the ticket. I'll make some toast. Simple. Wonderful. Then I'll head back upstairs, leisurely drink my coffee at my favorite chair by the window, and watch the streets below. It'll be so nice to just chill. I have the whole day ahead of me. Plenty of time to make plans. Figure out what to do next. I grab my coffee mug and the bag of bread. I think I'll have two slices. What the hell? Nothing wrong with a little indulgence. I load them into the toaster, set the timer, and I take a nice slow sip of my piping hot coffee. Mmm, it's perfect. Today, everything is perfect. The steam from the mug gets my glasses all foggy. I take another sip and then wipe the lenses on my shirt, and for a moment the room goes all blurry as I squint. But beneath the electric hum of the toaster, I can hear something. It's hard to make out. Very faint. If I hadn't stopped for a moment, then I probably wouldn't even have noticed it. I listen closely. But now there's just silence. I probably just imagined it. I'm probably not quite awake yet. It's fine. But then I hear it again. It's louder this time, and getting louder by the second. It's coming from outside. Down the street somewhere. I recognize it now. I wish I didn't. 
I wish very much that it would just go away. It's someone screaming. Suddenly, I'm not sure what to do. It's awfully hard to concentrate, but I need to stay calm. I want to pretend nothing happened. I want to eat my toast with strawberry jam and just sit in the sun. That would be very nice. But the screams are getting worse. Someone might be hurt. Someone might be dying. There's the pile of furniture I shoved in front of the door and the side window. A bookshelf, a heavy table, and a few chairs. I carefully push everything aside. I check from the window, but I can't see anyone out there. The streets are still all empty. I'd better find out what's going on. Maybe I can help. That would be nice, I suppose. Yes, that would be very nice. I unlock the door and slowly make my way down the steps. I haven't been outside in a while. It's the perfect temperature this morning. Not too hot, not too cold. The spring air is sweet and fragrant. There are houses still burning off in the distance, across the river. Thick plumes of oily black smoke are drifting high into the sky, pierced by shafts of golden sunshine. It's beautiful. What a beautiful day. I start walking down the hill, watching carefully. There's the scream again. Sounds closer now. Good. I'd better start running. I could always use the exercise. Not a bad way to start your morning, all in all. Sure, my quiet routine was nice, but it's fun to change things up. In fact, maybe I'll start running more often. I'm at the bottom of Cedar Street when I see her. Long black hair and a denim jacket. She's stumbling, limping badly. Looks like she lost one of her shoes, but otherwise she seems okay. Oh. Oh no, she's not okay. Not at all. She whirls around as she screams again with all her might, nearly falling over from the exertion. Her jacket is torn and soaked sticky with blood. There are two deep slashes across her shoulder, still oozing. She's talking to herself now, probably in shock. She hasn't even noticed me yet. Very bad. This isn't my emergency. I don't have to get involved. My coffee is getting cold. There's still time for me to get back to the house and relax. No. It's best to be neighborly. Do the right thing. That's it. I guess I'd better introduce myself. Good morning. What a day, huh? I wave to catch her attention. Startled, she turns and stares at me. She grimaces, both from pain and utter confusion. I smile right back. My name's Dan. I live up the next block. I point back in the direction of the house as she looks in stunned silence. She slowly tenses up, like she's getting ready to run. Or fight. She opens her mouth as if to say something, but stops, like she can't find the words. Her bloodshot eyes go wide, and then she squeezes them shut, 
shaking her head and clenching her fists as she sobs angrily. Oh, God! Oh, my God! Before I can take another step, she grabs my arm, hard enough to yank my shoulder from its socket. She's shaking me. I feel my glasses start to fall, but I catch them in time. I really should get them fixed. Do you have a car? Where's your car? We need to get out of here! She's absolutely frantic. I'm starting to feel a little stressed myself. But meeting new people can be kind of awkward at first. It's fine. I gently take her hand from my arm. It's okay. We don't need a car. Isn't it nice out today? What the fuck are you talking about, please? For God's sake, we've got to get out of here! Excellent idea. But first things first, let's just take it easy. You want some coffee? Come on, we can go back to the house. I'll show you the way. She looks at me like I'm speaking Russian, gasping for air. She sobs. She shoves me back, and I lose my balance, staggering to the ground. <laughs> Fuck you, help me! I, I can't run anymore. I've been running for miles. <laughs> good. That's a good thing. I get up to my feet and dust myself off. No harm done. That means it probably lost the scent after a while. You know, I think you ought to come inside with me. I reach out and take her hand, but she pulls back and punches me in the stomach. I wasn't expecting that. It really hurts. It really, really hurts. She's screaming again. Try to breathe. Deep breaths. Take a few deep breaths. Just breathe. Shut the fuck up. No! That wasn't nice. I need to relax. It won't do any good to get upset. I smile. I want to help you, but I think we're running out of time. Let's get back to the house. We need to hurry. She glares at me, but lowers her fists. I wait for her to follow as I start back up the hill. After a while, she comes after me, slowly at first, and then she tries her best to catch up as she hobbles on her bloodied, bare foot. Now this is more like it. I start to whistle while I walk. Soon we're back, and she's cautiously following me inside. I make sure to show her that I'm locking the door behind us before I drag the furniture across the room and pile it back against the door. I grab a roll of paper towels from the bathroom and discover some sports wrappings in the medicine cabinet. I run up to the bedroom and tear the pillowcases into strips of fabric. Good. When I return to the kitchen, I see her standing by the door, tense and nervous. Hey, I've got some stuff for your shoulder. Let's get you patched up. She eyes the makeshift bandages. She shakes her head. Don't touch me. I smile, shrug, and watch as she painfully lowers herself into one of the chairs by the counter and slowly, miserably, starts winding the fabric around her arm. Sure, it's not ideal, but the way I see it, there's no reason to let it ruin your day. Soon you'll be as good as new. I just know it. 
Believe me. She looks up from her arm and stares at me, quite unable to understand my outlook. You know, originally I was going to have some toast, but now I've worked up an appetite. I think I saw a carton of eggs somewhere around here. I'll make us a real breakfast. Coffee will be ready in a second. My stomach tightens into a knot, and I'm sweating. I can't remember what I'm doing. Oh yes, I'm looking for a spatula. This will be nice. It's been a long time since I've had company. A very long time. If only I could stop shaking. She's exhausted, but still watches me like a hawk as I search through the kitchen drawers. Finally, she slumps down, holding her head in her hands. I wish I could play some music. I say as I pour some vegetable oil in a pan. Music always makes things better. Hey, what's your name, by the way? I'm sorry, in all the excitement, I forgot to ask. Sarah. My name's Sarah. Okay, Sarah. I hope you like your eggs sunny side up, because that's about all I can cook. Well, that and toast. We've got some very nice jam, too. It's perfect. You'll love it. We were trying to get to the highway, me, Cassie, and Jimmy, and then, <clears throat> then something ran onto the road, flipped the car over. <sighs> What's going on? What's happening? Hmm. Should I tell her? I don't want to make her upset. I'd much rather enjoy spending time with my new friend. And yet, if only there was some way to cheer her up. There has to be a way. I have to make her understand. Things are changing. Changing very quickly. And that can make things tricky. But I found it helps to keep it all in perspective. I try to focus on the good things. Like this house, for example. Door was wide open when I found it. Must have been my lucky day. And now you're here. And that's good. And isn't that what really matters? All the good things that make life worthwhile? Reminds me of that Buddhist story, you know? There's a monk, and he, he trips over the edge of a cliff. He grabs onto a vine, but it's starting to break, and there's thousands of sharp, jagged rocks beneath him. He hears something and thinks maybe somebody's coming to help, but there's no one there. Instead, it's a tiger, a giant, ferocious tiger. It's getting closer and closer, leaning over the cliff to swipe at him with its claws. What does he do? See, there's some wild strawberries growing off the face of the cliff. He reaches over and picks some, savoring each bite. The toast pops up from the toaster. I take one of the slices and smear a blob of jam over it. Sarah doesn't say a word, and I can't escape her suspicious, bewildered glare, even as she takes the plate and mug of coffee. Gratefulness. Yes. Peace of mind. That's what really counts. That's what Tim Palmer used to tell me. He loved that stupid story about the monk. Hey, let me tell you about my friend Tim Palmer. That'll be a good way to pass the time. I'll tell you how I got to know him and uh, and what he did. Tim Palmer was one of my first patients. I'm a behavioral therapist. Or I was up until three weeks ago. It seems like forever. Funny. Time is just so funny now. Working with Palmer was a difficult experience. Don't get me wrong, I really liked him. Nice guy, interesting, polite, but struggled with severe depression and uncontrollable rage. 
nearly broke his wife's neck before the divorce, drove away all his friends and family. But that was all in the past. No reason to dwell on unpleasant things. Palmer was all about staying positive, looking forward, not backwards. He sincerely wanted to redeem himself, to become better and as quickly as possible. Maintained a journal, did yoga, meditated every day. Most of his paycheck went to charities, but it was never enough. During our meetings, he'd report feeling anxious and dissatisfied. The guilt and the hopelessness, and above all else, the anger remained. And still he looked for a miracle cure. His determination turned into outright obsession. Jesus, he must have bought every self-help book ever published. After a while, he started calling me up in the middle of the night, demanding to know if I thought he was a good person. I told him it was an inappropriate thing to ask. And anyway, my opinion was ultimately irrelevant. What truly mattered was how he felt about himself. He didn't like my answer. Told me he would look for alternative treatments. Afterwards, things started to get out of hand. Ha! Yes, all very unfortunate. Started going on these weird religious retreats. Flew out to Europe and South America and visited dozens of hippie clinics that promised spiritual cleansing. I think he hoped to come back reborn, but there were no changes. He felt nothing. Again and again, he was left bitterly disappointed, and he hated himself for all these failures. But he kept at it. He refused to submit to all his demons, as he would say, and so his descent continued. Palmer started conducting little experiments on himself. One time, he told me he was dabbling in sensory deprivation. Sleep deprivation came next, then fasting, then cutting and bloodletting, weeks of isolation. Finally, hallucinogens of every flavor. I warned him that it was unhealthy and counterproductive. I tried so many times to steer him back towards conventional, effective methods of self-care. But he never listened. That sounds resentful. I'm sorry, I shouldn't be so hard on him. After all, he was only trying to feel better. Isn't that what we all want? My hands twitch as I crack the eggs into the frying pan, and flecks of shell go everywhere. I watch them splatter in the hot oil. Oops. No big deal. I smile and shrug to Sarah as I toss everything into the garbage. She hasn't even touched her toast. Maybe she isn't hungry. A red stain is soaking through the bandages around her shoulder. She keeps looking back at the door, hypervigilant. She hears it too. There's this quiet pulsing in the air, almost electrical. If I hadn't stopped for a moment, then I probably wouldn't even have noticed it. We're probably just imagining things. It's fine. We just need to relax. Please don't think about it. Eventually, I had no choice. I told him it would be best if I was no longer his therapist. It was the right thing to do. He agreed. Shook my hand and said he was thankful for all my hard work. Such a nice guy. I truly hoped he could find the solution he wanted so desperately. But even as I tried to focus on the needs of my other patients, I still heard about Tim Palmer from time to time. There were troubling rumors about his activities. They persisted for years, getting darker and darker. 
until it stopped abruptly. I felt so relieved. It was very nice, actually. I'd have liked it if I'd never heard from him again. Ha! I would have liked that very much. I wish that he had just disappeared. Forever. But then I got the call in the middle of the night. Just like old times. His voice sounded different, though. Scratchy. Raw, like he'd been screaming. Palmer wanted to see me, right away. He was very excited about some new breakthrough he'd made and couldn't explain it over the phone. I should have known better than to get involved, but I was concerned about his well-being. And, to be perfectly honest, I had this morbid curiosity. He had a small house across the city, in a bad neighborhood. The lawn had grown up into a sea of swaying grass, with little islands of piled-up tires and garbage bags. There must have been 50 people living there with him. A crowd of them had gathered on the porch to greet me. They were all so thin and pale, and all smiling so warmly when I approached. They treated me like a dear old friend and gave me a tour of their empty rooms with dirty sleeping bags strewn all over the floor. Palmer was seated in the kitchen, in a deep trance. They approached him timidly, whispering in his ear that his former therapist had arrived. His eyes lit up, and he stood to give me a very unwanted hug. I was only there for about 15 minutes, but it felt like hours. He rambled endlessly as the others nodded and laughed with joy, hanging on his every word. I could barely understand it. Something about poison in our minds, making us do bad things. He'd found a way to purge himself of the poison through dedicated mindfulness and resolute positivity and relentless optimism. After years and years, he had finally found a way to become the perfect man he always knew he could be. It was all happening that night. The big moment. The final experiment. He compared the procedure to removing a tumor. But it sounded more like performing an exorcism. Palmer asked me if I would do him the honor of witnessing his purification. I politely declined. I notified the police on the drive home. Next morning, I heard all about it on the news. Something's outside. Something's scraping against the house. In a flash, Sarah jumps to her feet, <laughs> spilling her coffee all over the counter. She's shaking. She's looking around the room for something to grab, something to use as a weapon. It's outside the door now. There's a rhythmic tapping that's getting louder and louder. But we'll be okay. Look, I know you're scared and all fucked up. We're not safe here. We have to leave right now. Tell me you've got a car somewhere. Of course we're safe. We're safe as can be. You just need the right attitude. When people started going missing, I had my assumptions. By the time the National Guard was rolling through town, I had it figured out. It's all Tim Palmer's fault. Sarah's got her back to the wall. I don't think she's listening to me anymore, but she really should listen. I think it would be very helpful. He did it. I don't understand how, but he did it. Somehow that lunatic freak rewired his brain. Just not the way he wanted. Everything negative, everything dark, everything painful, 
every bad thought and terrible memory in his head. All of Palmer's demons coalesced into something physical, something real. It crystallized in his head, an entirely new form of life. Palmer must have died giving birth to it. It crawled out of him and... And it killed all the others. And it grew bigger. And bigger. There's a loud banging against the door. But I'm sure it'll go away. The pile of furniture is shaking now. Isn't it nice to finally understand? The thing's completely mindless. Blind and mindless. It's attracted to negative thoughts. Like scrap metal to a magnet. Pain, anger, fear. I think it likes fear the best. So you have to stay positive now. That's what I do. I choose to feel good about the world. I look on the bright side. Every minute of every hour of every day. And then I'm up all night. I barely get any sleep because it might catch the scent of my nightmares and track me down. Isn't that wonderful? Sarah doesn't seem to agree. You're completely fucking insane. She looks into my eyes with this angry, frightened look. I don't like it. I don't like it one bit. Especially as I feel my face start to fall into the same expression. The banging and scratching on the door is getting worse. Oh no. Where's my smile gone? You might be right. There were others that would have agreed, but... Then they're all dead now. You know how it is. We have to do what we can these days. Try to stay upbeat. I put my hand on her shoulder and pull her close. She squirms while I squeeze so tightly that my knuckles go white. Please. We've got to stay alive. Oh, dear. Oh, no. She's brought it right to us. It's breaking through. The barricade crashes over and it pours itself inside. Oh, fuck. Oh, Jesus. God, please, no. It's in the house now. Look away. Don't look. I can't close my eyes. I see it. Before, I'd only caught glimpses of it, but now I see it fully. It it moves clumsily skittering back and forth on hundreds of long, jagged legs, like an enormous cluster of black spiders all stuck together. Its body is like shrapnel, like a million shards of broken black glass, twisting and scraping and grinding against each other as it moves. There's no head. There's a writhing mass of long, glistening black filaments, wire-thin and razor-sharp. It shudders. The filaments tremble and then whip back and forth excitedly. It knows we're here. I want to run, but I can't move. I can't even close my eyes. Don't move. Don't move. Don't think about, for God's sake, don't think about any of it. It's such a nice day. Such a beautiful day. It's all right. Sarah grabs the chair she was sitting on and raises it above her head, ready to smash it down on the thing if it gets any closer. But it's useless. We both know it. 
The filaments snap back. There's a red splash, and most of her face is gone. She falls to her knees, clutching at her head, still trying to scream without her jaw. All she can do now is make this awful, gurgling, choking noise. She sinks to the floor, and slowly it crawls over her body, lashing at her with its filaments and cutting her apart, piece by piece. She twitches and shakes, and then goes still. I'm going to be sick. Don't think about it. It's distracted. Don't think about it. It doesn't matter. It's not happening. Breathe. Keep calm. Hang in there. Don't think about it. It's okay. I'll creep away. It doesn't know I'm here. I'll just inch back toward the door and then I can run. The thing turns ever so slightly. I'll be quick. Everything is going to be okay. It's fine. Everything's fine. It'll be quick. It'll be just a second. Maybe dying is better than being alive. Without another thought, I bolt. It's launching for me. Keep running. There's a burst of pain. Keep running. I fall onto the lawn and rock it back to my feet. My glasses are gone. Keep running. That's it. Good. Run and run and run. Get away. Get far away. I'll start over. Find a new place to hide somewhere. It's better this way. Think of the mess I'd have to clean up back there. Something warm is dripping onto my leg. I see the extent of my injuries. My right hand, a fingerless stub, like a hunk of meat. The pain is overwhelming. As I wrap up my mangled hand in my shirt, I can barely breathe. Can't even see. Everywhere I look, darkness is creeping around the edges of my vision. Maybe I'm blacking out. Could be worse. I'll be fine. As long as I keep moving. I'll find somewhere new. Then I'll figure out what to do next. I'll think of something. Some kind of plan. And tomorrow... I'll have a nice breakfast with coffee and toast with strawberry jam. It'll be so delicious. There's so much blood. I have the whole day ahead of me. The whole day ahead of me. A horror story about the world devolving into chaos due to a pandemic. Hmm, it's a little close to home these days. And for the woman in this tale, shared with us by author Melissa Rose Rogers, staying alive during the apocalypse means realizing that hiding can be more effective than fighting. Performing this tale are Aaron Lillis, Atticus Jackson, and Matthew Bradford. So find a place to stay concealed. It might be your only hope if you can find vinyl and a veneer of safety.
something rustles in the final sheeting. My headlamp is off, so even if I turn, I still couldn't see. Is it a rat? My heart pounds in my ears as intruders explore my home above. The floor joists creak. If I'm still and quiet, maybe they won't find me. It's been two months since I've heard any vehicles. Birdsong, cows mooing, and wind have been the soundtrack of this new life. It feels more like purgatory, like an afterlife. This morning, a diesel truck had growled through the mountain roads. One loud bang set the crows squawking. Bang, bang, silence, bang, silence, bang. The Cochrans are dead. It was too precise, too rhythmic to be return fire. Why didn't they use their shotgun? They've used it on chicken-murdering foxes. I bet they're probably four puddles of browning blood on their white linoleum. I haven't seen them in about three weeks. Last time I checked, their food was running low, so I don't have enough to share myself, but can't bear seeing them suffer. I knew this day would come as soon as the disease was mentioned on the news. I knew it when the cable networks went down and the bombings began and the internet dwindled. Server not reachable messages had populated most of the U.S. sites left. The wide web had narrowed in an instant. Satellite internet had let me access foreign news sites. Now I can turn on my computer when I feel like wasting electricity and play the Chrome Dino game. A cobweb catches a draft of air and whips across my face. Holding in a scream, I brush slap it away. Spiders terrify me, but they're not certain death like the men above. The cadence of the footsteps above is rhythmic as they go from room to room. An empty cat food bowl. It's like the gravelly baritone of a smoker. I can't make out most of what they're saying. Based on the different places the footsteps are sounding from, I think there are three. Please be safe, Sandy. Sandy is my inside-outside gingery cat. He strays around sometimes. I haven't seen him in a few days. Someone's in the downstairs bedroom flipping the breaker. It can't work. Removing the safety fuse was one of the first steps I took to prepare. I figured they'd loot my home, but didn't want them to notice the solar panels and thinking they worked. Footsteps pound toward the center of my meager living room. They're probably standing between the mission couch and the TV on that old cedar chest. My home's heating. The cast iron wood stove is between them and the kitchen. The stairs to the loft bedroom creak. I hope he bangs his head on the low peak ceiling. I mentally survey my bedroom. The shabby chic headboard. The burgundy quilt my grandmother made when I was a little girl. Now there's clanging in the kitchen. The second man, the younger tenor, is tossing my cookware on the floor, questing for hidden treasures. My hands are trembling, not just with fear, but anger at my belongings being violated, thrown about like trash. Nothing up here. The peritone's heavy footsteps slam downstairs. My insides shudder. At least I left the door unlocked. I bet they would have shot the lock or kicked in the door otherwise. Just pots. The tenor steps toward the wood-burning stove. Its door groans open. 
I'm grateful it's been too hot for a fire for months. In cooler weather, there's nothing I could do to mask the heat from its black belly. I'll check the bathroom. The baritone crosses the room. The bathroom is the most luxurious room in my tiny house. I even have a 50-inch tub. Moments after their gunfire, I had sprung into action. Shutting down the solar power was the first step. Then, I had run the kitchen and bathroom faucets for a few moments and flushed the toilet until everything was bone dry. I'd wiped up the scattering of water droplets, leaving no evidence of water and power. The tenor's footsteps travel from the kitchen back toward the living room. I can't make out what Baritone is telling him. There's a distinct pop above me, and then a clink, high and clear. My champagne... I'd been saving it for a special occasion. There are no special occasions anymore. There never will be. A tear, angry and cold, leaks down across my nose and seeps into my ear. Wood scrapes against swollen wood. Someone's pushing the crawlspace door open. My intestines curdle in protest. I tell myself, keep it together, keep it together, keep it together. Don't pee yourself. My hands tremble, so I hug myself tightly to keep from shaking the vinyl sheeting. A flashlight sweeps overhead, illuminating the dusty cobwebs. A cavity in the red clay conceals me, created by the peculiarities of hillside construction. This silent onlooker would see a canvas of red earth framed by foundation and walls and accented by dusty vinyl sheeting moldering boxes of asphalt shingles, several mostly empty cans of eggshell paint, and two long boxes of engineered hardwood. Nothing of value, nothing to steal. The door groans shut. Its padlock is in my pocket, chilling my thigh. I figured if I left the crawlspace unlocked, they'd see nothing interesting and be on their way, but a locked door would herald valuables. Useless streams of afternoon sunlight have been swallowed by evening's darkness. They sing drunkenly, loudly. By the sounds of it, they've helped themselves to more than champagne. Baritone heads to the guest room, yelling that the other two can fight over the loft bed. Tanner calls dibs and somehow lumbers upstairs. The silent one crashes on the couch last, leaving me sleepless in a crawl space with all my carefully rationed food crammed next to me. I don't have many supplies, so after taking care of the solar and water, I had stuffed canvas bags with my cans and bags of food and hidden them down here. When I heard their truck engine rev up at the Cochran's place, I'd slipped back into the crawl space. Waiting down here is definitely worse than the waiting of my frantic preparations had been. At least then I was doing something. Now I'm helpless. I'm trapped. I'm in an abysmal coffin with floor joists for my ceiling and reeking clay for a bed. It's almost noon when they start stirring. Gray sunshine streams through a chink like water spouting into a sinking ship. They're quiet growling. Indications of hangovers, perhaps. Nausea from my stomach eating itself washes over me. I'm stiff, desperate to pee, and my adrenaline wore off long ago. With nothing left to steal, 
They leave, their loud truck peeling out of the driveway, tearing up the gravel. You can do this. You can do this. You can do this. I'm like the little engine that could, but it's not a hill I'm trying to get over. I pull the canvas totes with me to the doorway. The wooden door sticks against the jam, swollen worse by morning dew and a humid night. I throw my weight into it, and it gives way to blinding light. Those creeps drove me underground and probably killed my neighbors. My veneer of safety is shattered like brittle plastic. My insides tremble again. I heave my totes of food on my shoulder. I'm shaking, slipping in the mud as I make my way to the front door, left open for birds and bugs to explore. I shut the door behind me and lock the deadbolt, but it doesn't make me feel any better. I survey my trashed house, bottles everywhere, couch pillows on the floor, pictures removed, looking for a safe, I guess. I step into my luxurious bathroom and the aroma assaults me with the water off. One of them took a dump in my otherwise pristine toilet. I'm talking a bread loaf-sized deposit. It's disgusting. And they had the audacity to take every scrap of toilet paper. I've got to get the water and power back on. I've got to do something to feel normal again. But I wish I had some toilet paper. It's such a simple thing. If I just had the damn toilet paper, maybe I'd feel less violated. More normal. I shut the bathroom door and slump to the hallway floor. I hug my knees to my chest, but can't find comfort. Maybe I'll have to check out the Cochran's place sooner than later. Let's face it, there's a good way for a zombie apocalypse to start, and there's a bad way. A naturally mutating virus, evolution doing what it does, oh, that's fine. But in this tale, shared with us by author K.P. Taylor, we learn that the uh, walking dead have been brought about by that most devilish of scientists, a chemist for the food industry. Performing this tale are Dan Zapula, Mick Wingert, Mary Murphy, Jesse Cornett, Nicole Goodnight, Kyle Akers, and Mike Delgadio. So try to eat the most natural food you can. Avoid the preservatives, the chemicals, and the dyes, such as Red Lake. What was once a young man is wandering around the alley in a maroon flannel shirt, black blood caked in its hipster beard. As I make my way home, it tails me, half puppy dog and half vulture. I walk up the two flights of stairs to my room at the motel and regard it from the landing. 
It stops before reaching the first step, seemingly perplexed, if it is capable of any cognitive function. Stairs are a human construct, and many animals have trouble navigating them. Cows, sheep, and whatever the hell these things are. I settle into my room and open my backpack. A couple bottles of bourbon, a few dozen candy bars, two cartons of shelf-stable almond milk, and a bag of mixed nuts. I begin to eat the candy compulsively until my stomach burns and my heart palpitates and I am so wired up that it takes most of the bourbon to bring me down. When I finally fall asleep, memories assail me. It was late fall, and I was 14. The old reservoir was lined with leafless trees silhouetted against the uniformly gray sky. The wind blew in little eddies, picked up dead leaves and danced with them before dropping them in the water. My father's shoes were at the edge of the reservoir, a rolled up sock in each of them. He was wading into the water with a butterfly net. You coming? I trudged, treacle-footed, toward him. What's so special about this frog anyway? It changed the world. My father sloshed toward some reeds that dangled in the water. Take this. He handed me the net, then crouched and gently raised the reeds from the water threads of opaque eggs clung beneath them like perfect strings of pearls. Frog eggs? Yes. But not the frog we're looking for. These are bullfrog eggs. I skimmed the net across the surface of the water, picking up dead leaves and silt. If the frog's here, it'll be near the bottom, with the snapping turtles. I shuddered. Snapping turtles? (laughs) You don't get snapping turtles west of the Rockies. Oh... I swept my net through the cloudy bottom of the reservoir, and when I lifted it free of the water, I felt the tug and struggle of a small creature. Dad, I have something. He waded toward me. Let's have a look. Is it a bullfrog? My father reached inside the net. Xenopus lavis, the African clawed frog. I've been looking for you, old friend. Would you like to hold it? Place your thumbs behind its head. Yeah, yeah, good. I peered at the frog. It was flat and smooth as a stone, a mottled olive color with small pea-green eyes on top of its head. Incredible. They've extended their range farther than I had imagined. This thing changed the world? It seems harmless. Indeed. There was a scientist in the 1930s by the name of Lancelot Hogman who found that if you inject a pregnant woman's urine under the skin of a female African clawed frog, it would begin to ovulate within 12 hours. It was called the Hogman Test. Thousands of these frogs were exported all over the world to be used as pregnancy testers. When chemical tests became mainstream in the 1960s, the frogs were abandoned. Many found their way into pet stores or were released into waterways. They've become an invasive species and are vectors for the chytrid fungus, which is responsible for the loss of hundreds of amphibian species around the world. This little guy did all that? I regarded the tiny critter with slightly more esteem. 
Never underestimate the small and unassuming creatures. They are the pivot on which the entire world turns. I wake up with my head throbbing dully. My mouth feels dry and cottony. I pull a gallon jug of spring water from my stash and gulp down some of its tepid contents, then sling my backpack over my shoulder and reach for the axe under my bed. The hipster creature is waiting for me at the foot of the stairs, groaning and bumping around like a broken Roomba. Its arms are outstretched, and its ashy fingers twitch as if playing an invisible piano. It glances up at me with expressionless eyes. In the center of its wire brush beard, its slack mouth hangs open, revealing teeth that look like the burnt ends of cigarettes. I shuffle down the steps and draw the axe back and bring it down on the former human's skull. The beast falls backwards, and a dark blood sprays from its head like a blown-out oil derrick. Bile claws up my throat as I regard the convulsing thing with pity and disgust. Finally, the little twitching fingers become still, but I wait a few more seconds before stepping woozily forward. I grab the axe handle and try to work the blade out of the skull, but it is stuck fast and deep. The creature grabs my wrist, and for a moment, it looks like we're holding hands. Jackie, the kindergarten teacher, loved to hold hands. She had large, wet eyes and a gummy smile, and she seemed so grateful just to be treated nicely. Not well, even. Just nicely. She was supposed to be Jack, not Jackie, another boy. Her father considered her conception a misfire, an errant sperm in an otherwise perfect record. He'd bowed out of the baby-making business then, three for four. Jackie and I had been dating for a few months when I was invited to meet her parents. Her brothers were not coming to the dinner, so I'd only have to deal with the folks. Her father sat at the head of the table with his old police badge slung around his neck like a livery collar. He had small, twinkling eyes and a thin, downturned mouth. Jackie's mother served the food, grilled salmon steaks with asparagus spears on cobalt china plates. Jackie tells me you're a chemist for the food industry. She drowned her salmon in garlic butter sauce. That's right. How marvelous. Your parents must be very proud. My mother died when I was very young. Oh, I'm so sorry. And my father is disappointed that I haven't thrown myself into more worthwhile work. I guess that's the way of the world. <laughs> children disappoint fathers. Fathers disappoint children. Jackie's father snorted. I'm proud of my boys. Lincoln just made sergeant. William and Robert are getting their licks. They're moving up. I'm proud of my boys. No mention of Jackie. Teaching wasn't as glamorous as police work. It didn't come with a gun you could holster at your hip or a badge you could sling around your neck. Jackie's mother smiled supportively. What does a chemist for the food industry do? 
Well, are these farm-raised or wild-caught salmon? <sighs> the cheap ones. They are the less expensive salmon. The farm-raised salmon. I forked up some of the crumbly flesh and held it up to the light. You see this beautiful coral color? So farm-raised salmon aren't naturally this color. Farm-raised salmon are flat and torpid. Their flesh is the color of mushy oatmeal. That's where I come in. I decide on the correct ratio of leucanthin pink to add to their feed, and voila, there you have it. Perfectly appetizing salmon. Jackie's father frowned at the contents of his plate and put his fork down. I think I lost my appetite. I'm sorry. Your salmon's fine. Uh, better than fine. Almost all food that's commercially available looks bland and unappealing before the addition of color. Most cheese is pale white, and pickles are gray. So, what does your father do? Jackie interjected hopefully. He's a scientist. He was a naturalist, but now he's a mathematical biologist. He studies population dynamics. How marvelous! <laughs> I'm not sure if he thinks it's marvelous. He's so preoccupied with climate change and overpopulation and our burden on the Earth's natural resources. Overpopulation? <laughs> no such thing. He nudged his wife. I wonder what he'd make of us with our four children. He'd probably tell you that you have three too many. Jackie's father smiled coolly. But then there would be no Jackie, and no... He waved his hand over his plate. Lovely salmon dinner. The thing's hand clamps around my wrist and tightens like an iron shackle. There's a kindling crack of dead bone as I bring my knee down on its neck. Its grip slackens, and as I rest my hand free, its arm falls away heavy and limp. There are superficial scratches on my wrist, four red slashes amid a smudge of sooty blood. Shit. As I stagger into the parking lot, sunlight sears my eyes, and pulsing dots dance in front of me. I pop the trunk of my Chevy Nova. Next to the bolt-action hunting rifle and the flare gun, there's a duffel bag stocked with medical supplies. I rifle through the bag to find the rubbing alcohol, splash some on the wound, and then wrap my wrist in gauze. I pick up the rifle and rest it on the front passenger seat. I try the ignition. It sputters half-heartedly. It turns over on my third attempt, and I head out toward the interstate. My father was dying. He lay on the hospital bed with his hands curled upward and his fingers drawn forward, mantis-like. A single white sheet covered his body. It was all the weight he could bear. I wait for death, like a beetle in a spider web. They worshipped dung beetles in ancient Egypt, did you know that? Even dead, the cochineal beetle is useful. It is ground up to give us the color carmine. You know that, of course. You and your colors. Son? I'm here, Dad. You're far away. A lamplight in the fog. I'm right here, Dad. 
There are too many of us. It's just me. Too many of us on the planet. An apple filled with worms. We are an impossible burden on the earth. How many animals are killed to feed us in a single year? Dad? How many? <laughs> I shrugged my shoulders. 500 million? Not even close. 56 billion. And that's only the terrestrial animals. Our oceans will be dead and empty within 20 years. You need to rest. You can't concern yourself with... His eyelids fluttered closed. I wondered if he took some satisfaction from the fact that he was dying from an obscure and incurable disease. Even when it came to dying, my father was an overachiever. Anyone could die in their sleep or be run over by a bus. But my father would feel the tragic embrace of gersman straussler Schenker syndrome. Suddenly, his eyes snapped open. Remember what I told you about the smallest creatures of the natural kingdom? That they are the pivot on which the world turns. He was trying to sit up, and his voice came out small and tremulous. I found the answer. Dad? You must finish my work. I pull into the rest stop outside of town. An American flag hangs at half-mast, sun-bleached and trembling in the wind. I pick up the rifle. How many creatures have I killed with it? I've lost count. I considered it my civic duty, and I would sit on the second floor landing, sipping whiskey and firing at them. It was somewhat cathartic, the crack of the rifle, and then a moment later, the wet slap of a bullet meeting flesh. It was easy, too, as long as you told yourself that they were no longer human, no longer capable of conscious thought. Once a couple of flies land on a strip of flypaper, it isn't long before the entirety of the surface is thick and black and squirming. So it was with these things. Once you killed one, more would gather, and picking them off was easy. One day I woke to a great swarm of them, more than I had ever seen. Their feet moved in step, and each set of eyes stared out as one. This flood of automatons poured down the streets and pressed up against the motel until I felt it might be swallowed up in a sea of living corpses. I was imagining my inglorious last stand when they slowly began to leave the streets and make their way across the fields. For hours, they ambled across the plains. Then they were gone. Now there's only the occasional straggler who's failed to join the rest, like my hipster creature. My hipster creature. Garnet spots are blossoming on the gauze on my wrist. Too much blood for those little scratches. I shiver and head to the visitor center. For weeks I had avoided my father's house. 
Inside, it was musty with dormant air, and a fine patina of dust had settled on the surfaces. The house was like my father, demure and solemn with the occasional quirk. The broken cuckoo clock above the mantel, the hand-carved soapstone frog resting on a bookshelf. In the fridge, I discovered dozens of little orange vials. I was wondering what they might be when I noticed some light dancing under the basement door. My father must have been a janitor or a jailer in a previous life because he had almost a dozen different keys on one ring. I tried one key and then another. Finally, the fifth key slid in and turned with a click. I was met with cool, sterile air as I descended the stairs. There was a desk that ran the length of the basement. It was cluttered with computers that clicked and popped as they ran their interminable calculations. At the end of the desk were piles of notes and journals. I gathered some up and began to read. From the bite of the lone star tick, Emblioma Americanum, Galactose Alpha, 1-3-Galactose, or Alpha-Gal, a carbohydrate found in most mammalian cell membranes, but not in apes, old-world monkeys, or humans. The immune system releases antibodies. Further intake of mammalian protein containing Alpha-Gal results in allergic responses typical Swelling, itching, gastrointestinal complications, anaphylaxis. Recovery potential has not been confirmed. Chiggers, Trombiculidae have also been implicated. I spent hours parsing the seemingly ceaseless information. My father believed that attempting to stem the rate of human population growth was futile. War, contraception, disease, and legalized abortion had only slightly slowed it. Within 100 years, our burden on the Earth would no longer be tenable. The oceans would be barren, the Arctic ice melted to nothing, the rainforests completely decimated. And the biggest contributor to the destruction of the Earth's resources was the animal agriculture industry. Responsible for 20% of greenhouse gas emissions and consuming more than half the water used in the U.S. annually. It was also the leading cause of ocean dead zones, species extinction, and habitat destruction. We would have to end our dependence on animal agriculture, and my father saw Alpha-Gal as the key. His research wasn't only theoretical. Those little orange vials in the fridge upstairs contained what he called Synthetic Mycoplasmic Alpha-Gal, or SMAG. I didn't understand all of the details, but I gathered that he had discovered a way to make the alpha-gal induce an immune response when administered orally. My father's obsession with continuing education, the graduate classes in epidemiology, immunology, bioengineering, and the hours in the lab suddenly made sense. He had the problem and the solution, but he lacked a delivery system. That was something I could provide. I enter the visitor center from the south. Restrooms branch off to the east and west. And on the north wall, above a bookshelf of moldering things-to-do brochures, hangs a six-foot state map 
I remember admiring the map when I first came to town. The black circles demarking towns, the red and blue shields of the interstate and the smaller roads and rivers flowing everywhere like a circulatory system. In a world without Google Maps or SatNav or Siri, the map will be indispensable. I thrust the stock of the rifle between the frame and the wall and pull it free. It lurches forward with a crack and shatters on the floor. I pick through the broken glass, fold the map and put it in my backpack and head to the car. The sun is a corn-colored disc high in the cerulean blue sky. With any luck, if the main roads are open and I drive like the devil is behind me, I can reach my father's house by midnight. There must be something there, something I overlooked. I peel out of the parking lot, my knuckles blanched on the steering wheel and rivulets of blood staining my forearm. The sun is golden. It is canary. It is bismuth. I took those orange vials with me when I left my father's house. Over the next few months, I was able to add the smag in the manufacturing process and contaminate countless candy bars and soft drinks and jars of pickles and salmon steaks. It was easy, too. In our vastly deregulated world, there was no oversight, no quality control beyond me. All those beautiful colors. Buckeye brown, sunset orange, baker's rose, and the sinister-sounding Red Lake, tainted. I still wasn't sure whether it would work, whether my father's creation would be resistant to processing and cooking. But now all I could do was wait. It wasn't long before news reports began trickling in of a mysterious new affliction. Men, women, and children were admitted to hospitals with the same symptoms. Rashes, nausea, headaches, wheezing. Some became severely ill, and a few almost died. The public was obsessed with finding patient zero the person who had first contracted the disease. A spokesman from the CDC did the rounds on news bulletins and was clearly exhausted by the time he appeared on Fox News. It is likely that this person is asymptomatic and is spreading the disease without even realizing it. The news anchors nodded their heads solemnly. Do you think it's an immigrant disease? Something brought to our country by illegal aliens? The spokesman arched his eyebrows. It is impossible for me to offer conjecture. We're only concerned with finding patient zero, whoever that is. Are you looking at immigrants? We are looking at everyone. So you're just shooting in the dark. After the initial hysteria, physicians and epidemiologists realized that they were dealing with widespread alpha-gal allergy. Although they could not understand how it had become so prevalent, the tick and chigger populations had not increased dramatically or quickly enough, even with climate change, to account for the explosive rise in cases, and most of the afflicted had no known exposure to either parasite. Some began to theorize that mosquitoes might have become vectors for alpha-gal as well. Stocks in animal agricultural companies tanked. Within a year, Tyson Foods and Smithfield Foods filed for bankruptcy. Sales of meat analogs and soy products skyrocketed. 
But because the alpha-gal allergy only caused people to react to red meat, the consumption of fish, chicken, and turkey also rose exponentially. Butterball released a new advertising campaign. Turkey, it's not just for the holidays. Thousands of new fishing trawlers and factory ships set forth into the world's oceans. My father's plan had failed. We had stomped out one small fire while a wall of flame had risen up behind us. Then the alpha-gal allergy changed. Somehow it had become communicable. Something in the smag must have mutated, and now anyone exposed to the bodily fluids of an infected person could contract the alpha-gal allergy as well. The infected began to change too. Even if they consumed no red meat and developed no allergic reactions, they gradually entered a kind of fugue state. Dull and dissociated, they reacted to nothing and neither ate nor drank. Tent cities were set up across the country to isolate and treat them. There were hopes that the infected would eventually recover, but the only thing that seemed to recover was their appetite. And they apparently knew instinctively that human flesh did not contain alpha-gal. The first casualty was reporter Brooke Gladwin, who was attacked by a pack of them during a live broadcast from the largest tent city. Her screams were in vain. These things could no longer be reasoned with. Their ears were deaf to petitions of mercy. Sick with guilt, I began to wonder about my father's intentions with those little orange vials. Was this violent end an unfortunate complication of an otherwise brilliant plan? Or was it the brilliant plan itself? Knowing human nature, knowing our selfishness and the power of our appetites, had my father deceived me into eradicating humans altogether? After driving for hours, I encounter a makeshift roadblock near the state line. It is cleverly constructed with a high chain-link gate and a catch that can only be released from the other side. The edges of the road give way too sharply to risk trying to drive around the barricade, and a bulwark of twisted razor wire fringes the asphalt beyond it, preventing access on foot. The only way around the gate is over it. Less than a hundred feet beyond the barricade is an old water tower near the tree line. A perfect sniper's perch, I think bitterly. I remember the landing at the motel and how I picked off the creatures one by one. I retrieve the rifle from the car and fire once into the air. I wait. No sign of movement from the water tower or the tree line. I consider returning to the highway and finding another route, but I suddenly feel profoundly fatigued. I walk over to the gate and grip the links as high as I can reach. I lift my foot. It feels heavy and alien. And I recall that long-ago afternoon at the reservoir, sloshing through the mud with my father. I try again to raise my foot. It hangs in the air. I turn from the gate and look out across the fields below the highway. On the horizon, a storm is brewing. Great columns of violet clouds have risen hundreds of feet into the heavens. Before leveling out at an invisible plateau, 
anvil-shaped clouds, thunderheads. A breeze ripples through the long grass, making undulating waves. I can almost hear the hush of the wind calling to me like a siren song. But there is no siren and no song. Only a vast and empty Viridian Sea. I leave the gate and the car behind and clamber down to the embankment. As I stumble toward the fields, the first heavy drops of rain begin to fall. My fingers twitch, and I realize that my mind is no longer tethered to my memories. Then comes a sound like the crack of thunder, and all of the color drains from the world. In our final tale, we find ourselves in a world where extraterrestrials have driven humanity into a nocturnal existence. Light, it seems, is incompatible for the aliens. And in this tale, shared with us by author Simon Bleakin, a human recon group has been sent down into an old tunnel network to gain information on these new predators. Performing this tale are David Alt, Erica Sanderson, James Cleveland, Andy Cresswell, and Jake Benson. So stay sleepless, stay in the dark. It's the only way to survive in the empire of the moon and stars. Our lights pierce the thick darkness of the shaft, those deep depths where the only sounds were the distant echoing drips of moisture and a faint furtive scurrying of unseen things. Kaz flashed me a glance and I read the alarm in her eyes. We both hoped it was rats, but we both knew it probably wasn't. There was fear down here, a palpable terror that hung in the air. It smelt like sour sweat. Another smell hit us then, the stomach-wrenching stench of fresh vomit as Delve staggered into view, wiping his mouth with the back of his hand. His face was pale and greasy in the light of our torches, and his boots and the bottoms of his fatigues were spattered in puke. You need to work on your aim. Kaz ribbed him teasingly, but the humor fell flat. Nobody felt like laughing, not down here. Not after what we'd just seen. It was finding the missing patrol that had done it those shredded fragments covering the tunnel floor, each so torn apart it was impossible to even be sure how many bodies we were looking at. The leeches hadn't done that, which meant there was a stalker down here somewhere. We were on the right track at least, but that didn't make us feel any better. It meant we were in more danger than we cared to admit. These tunnels were normally the only safe way to move about during the day. Okay, safe was a relative term, but they were definitely far less risky than the surface while the sun was out. Nobody could survive up there during the day anymore. Not out in the open, at least. You could thank the leeches for that, for forcing human beings to become nocturnal. 
for stealing away our daylight world and driving us into a new empire of the moon and stars. In truth, we called them leeches, but nobody knew what they really were. They were slimy, segmented things covered in greasy scales and spiny hooked appendages with mouths like lampreys. They only came out during the day. At night, they slithered away into cracks and burrows and seemed to shy away from dark spaces altogether. The darkness apparently activated a natural sleep cycle in the creatures, made them vulnerable, so they hid and slept until the sun's warm rays woke them once more. But what made them truly terrifying was the speed with which they could swarm a person, and those jaws, once they clamped on, were near impossible to prise off. These sinister new additions to the fauna of our planet were the unfortunate side effects of a disastrous first contact with the only alien visitors to have openly made themselves known to humanity. Things had not gone well. We barely avoided war with them, and when they left, they left their cockroaches behind. Some felt it had been a deliberate contamination, perhaps the first stage in a long occupation. Nobody knew for sure. That had been three years ago, and we were still learning to adapt to the changes in our world. Whole cities had been rapidly abandoned when it was discovered that during the day there was no reliable means of keeping the leeches at bay. Walls were scaled with alarming ease, chimneys became a feeding chute down which the creatures could tumble unharmed, and cat flaps also provided an all-too-easy means of ingress. Only locked doors and sealed windows would keep the things out, and entire houses and office buildings had frequently been encrusted with a coating of the writhing things trying to reach the warm meat hiding inside. Settlements quickly became closed and secured as the inhabitants shifted to the nocturnal lifestyle of their new midnight world. As scary as the leeches were, the things that hunted them, the things we called stalkers, were worse still. At least the leeches only came out during the day. Reports of stalker attacks, although fewer in number, seemed to indicate they were active both day and night. Trouble was, nobody had so far got a clear look at one. They seemed to possess some kind of natural camouflage, but body parts had been brought back to the settlements for study. Sinewy limbs covered in clumps of wiry hair and ending in hooked talons. It gave us an idea of what we were up against, but we still needed to know more. That's what brought us down here, into the old transit tunnels outside Newstone Settlement. We were following the spore of the Stalkers, one of six small teams of reluctant volunteers tasked with bringing back a live specimen. It was hoped that a better understanding of these omnivorous predators would enable us to develop defences against their attacks. As it was, Stalker attacks were swift, deadly, and unpredictable. They struck out of nowhere, vanished just as fast, and so far had evaded all attempts at capture. Our reward for undertaking this dangerous assignment was the promise of extra food rations and a larger water allowance. Right now, just the thought of stripping off these damp, sweaty clothes and having a proper hot shower was almost making it all worthwhile. Going down? I saw we'd reached a ladder leading into a deeper section of tunnels. Kaz shone her light into the darkness below, illuminating grimy rungs slick with moisture. Delve wrinkled his nose. Jeez. It stinks down there. Kaz flashed him a withering look. We ready for this? I gave Delve a sympathetic glance. 
He had looked like a rabbit in headlights since we'd come down into the tunnels and clearly wasn't cut out for this kind of work. None of us were military, but Kaz had some former experience in private security and was one tough cookie. I'd seen her punch out the lights of a drunken guy twice her size after he made a slur towards her one night in a bar. I knew she could hold her own in a crisis. I had formerly been in the fire service and was no stranger to dangerous situations myself, though this was a whole new one for me. Delve, on the other hand, had been a parcel courier, and so must have been crapping his pants since drawing this assignment. But everyone had to do their civic duty. It was a requirement of admission into a settlement. Citizens were put onto a rotor, each required to take shifts at whatever jobs needed doing, everything from planting and gathering food to security patrols and repairs and maintenance. The rotors were originally intended to be tailored to suit skills already possessed by the citizens, but often the reality was that everyone just mucked in with everything. Let's just get it over with. I clapped Delve on the back. Sooner it's done, sooner we can go home. We started down, Kaz in the lead and Delve bringing up the rear. The going was slow and awkward, the rungs slick and dangerous. We gripped the ladder so tightly our knuckles were white, our boots threatening to slip off at any moment. The metallic clanging of our slow descent echoed into the darkness, and some part of me morbidly wondered if we were just ringing the dinner bell for whatever waited below. That stench... it's making me heave. I suddenly wondered if having him go last was a mistake. Puke on me and I'll shoot you, I warned him. But in truth, part of me felt the same way. The stench rising up from below was nauseating, the sickly smell of rotting meat coupled with something like spoiled vegetables. Hey, Delph, you could have held it in. She who smelt it dealt it. Kaz suddenly let go of the ladder and dropped into the darkness. For a heartbeat, I wondered why. Then heard boots splash into stagnant water after a drop of only two feet and realized we'd reached the bottom. She moved off to the right, torch dancing across tunnel walls, and I heard her exhale loudly. God, Jesus! Moments later, I joined her and understood why. The tunnel was a slaughterhouse lined with ragged carcasses, rib cages stripped of flesh, bones that had been gnawed upon and cracked open for the marrow, torn fragments of old shoes and shreds of bloody clothing, all of it crawling with insects that were quickly cleaning up any remains that had been missed. Is it some kind of a nest? I pressed the back of my hand to my mouth. Kaz nodded grimly. Something like that. This is definitely not leeches. Look at the size of these teeth marks. Delve shone his torch upon a human femur riddled with deep striations. Under normal circumstances, I know Kaz would have made a smutty joke about the size of Delve's bone, but here, in this subterranean abattoir... Even her normally unflappable sense of inappropriate humour was silenced. Guys, there's a fresh kill over here. It's Bravo team. Those words sent a jolt of panic through me. The kind of nervous terror that flips your stomach over and makes your balls crawl up into your body. I glanced at Delve and saw his eyes were wide, his lips pressed so tightly together he no longer seemed to have a mouth. We were silent as we joined her our torches adding to the illumination that now showed us the pile of fresh bodies. The limbs had been snapped like dry twigs, the torsos and faces shredded beyond recognition, and still warm piles of congealing entrails squelched underfoot. 
The blood had already coagulated, but there was no getting over the fact that those remains had been up and walking less than an hour before. That's two teams dead. Two. Hold it together. We start doing anything stupid and we end up the same. This... this is stupid. Running around down here like this. Delve's voice rose to an unsteady shout and I put my hand on his shoulder. Keep it down. Whatever did this could still be close. I'd better radio this in. You two, keep an eye out. Delve and I backed up against the curving tunnel wall where foul water dripped like icy tears onto our heads and backs. We shivered as we strained our ears listening to the soft ambience of the tunnels, the drip of distant water, our own breathing, and the faint echo of things shifting and scuttling far away. Is this what the other teams had heard before the end fell upon them? Had they too thought they were safe and alone down here? Had there been any warning before death had claimed their lives? I looked at the gore-spattered guns still clutched in dead hands. It didn't look like they had even had a chance to fire a shot off. How is that possible? Delta team reporting in. Report. Stoker's reply cut crisply through the still air from the central control room in the settlement. We've just found Bravo team. No survivors. Looks like they were ambushed. That's Bravo and Echo teams down. Any sign in the quarry? Nothing yet. Though... What is it? Well, there's something moving down around here. We've discovered what looks like a nest at these coordinates. There are a lot of bodies here. Looks like it's been established for some time. Understood. Retrieve Bravo team's cameras and weapons, then proceed with your assigned patrol route. Yes, sir, but... Is there a problem, Wild? Well, no, sir. I just wondered if it might be wiser to join up with the other teams before heading on. From what I'm seeing, the smaller teams are being overwhelmed. If we had greater numbers, we might- You have your orders. Stick to them. Stoker out. Kaz's face was pinched into a tight line when she turned to us. She gestured at the torn and scattered bodies at her feet. Okay, you heard him. Give me a hand here. We set to work retrieving the cameras and guns from the corpses. It was a grim task, and we stayed silent as we did it. I saw Delve's hands were shaking and I wondered how much longer he could hold up down here. Our hands and boots were soon slick with gore and we cleaned them as best as we could. After we were done, Delve stumbled out into the other tunnel for a few minutes. From the sounds of retching that reached us, there was no doubt why he had gone. We should have stayed together. It was a foolish risk to allow any member of the team to wander away, even into the adjoining tunnels. But neither Kaz nor I made any attempt to stop him. We were all struggling to cope. When he returned, looking drained and paler than I had ever seen him, we put the retrieved weapons and cameras into the pack on my back, and without another word, we pressed on. The tunnels down here seemed tighter, narrower, and the dripping of moisture formed an almost constant background sound. We felt more on edge too, those bodies were a clear warning that we were not alone, and that we were wandering through territory that had been claimed. It was why we were here, of course, but the ease with which the two teams we had discovered had been slain was terrifying, and only served to highlight how vulnerable and ill-prepared we truly were. The unknown pressed in all around us, filled with a sense of growing threat, and I looked back several times at Delve, partly to reassure myself he was still there, that something hadn't clawed him off into the darkness without our knowing, and partly to make sure he was holding up. His eyes were wide, his lips moving soundlessly as though reciting something over and over, and the hands holding the gun were bloodlessly white. 
Heads up. The light from Kaz's torch had picked something out in the tunnel up ahead. It looked like a doorway, probably some kind of maintenance access, but there was a thick smear of blood on the wall next to it. Delph, take the left. Stu, go right. We did as she said, positioning ourselves either side of the door while Kaz stood against the wall opposite, readying her weapon and torch. At a nod from her, Delve reached out for the handle and pulled the door open while Kaz aimed both gun and torchlight directly into the opening. It's clear. She lowered her weapon. That was when I saw the wall beside her ripple. I went to call out, but something dark and fast barreled into her, knocking her sideways. She landed heavily, and then the air was full of the coppery taint of blood. It all happened so fast, I I swung my gun around, trying to focus on whatever was attacking, but all I could see was the frantic writhing as Kaz rolled and squirmed and kicked on the floor, ragged chunks ripping from her clothes and skin as she screamed. I caught swift and sudden glimpses of something stocky and dark, covered in coarse hair, but it seemed to vanish as soon as I saw it, like some kind of deadly chameleon. Shoot! Delve stood like a man frozen before the headlights of an oncoming train, his own gun forgotten in his hands. At what? The thing could either mimic its surroundings perfectly, or had some other means of becoming invisible to our eyes. If I fired blindly, I'd hit Kaz. If I waited any longer, it would be all over for her. Even as the thought flashed through my mind, Kaz gave a horrible, gurgling screech, and I already knew I was too late. She slumped back against the damp stone, throat torn open and the front of her stomach glistening where she had been brutally disemboweled. A sick, cold shock shivered through me, my heart thudding dully in the back of my throat. For a second, that pulsing throb of my own heart was all I could hear. I tried to swallow, but all the moisture had dried in my throat and mouth. Where is... Shut up! I tried to focus my eyes on the shadows and dark spaces around where Kaz's body now lay. Had the thing moved, or was it still there, hidden and watching us? Shine your torch! That finally coaxed some life back into Delve's useless, frozen form. With a click, his beam shone fully onto Kaz's ravaged face, then flicked quickly away, shining into the darkness around her. I was grateful for that, because I was sure her dead eyes were staring accusingly at me, as if asking why I hadn't saved her. I kept my gun trained on the darkness, listening to the silence of the tunnel. Stay there. I'm gonna try... From the corner of my eye, I saw something move. I staggered back, and the dark, shaggy mass of the stalker slammed into me, throwing me back against the wall. My head cracked hard enough to burst white stars in my vision, and my mouth filled with the taste of blood as I bit down onto my tongue. All of that was eclipsed by the agony of the talons that now shredded into my stomach, parting cloth and skin like paper. With a shriek of shocked pain, I tried to grab the writhing mass to pull it off me, but it was like trying to grasp a shadow. It was a physical entity, but it moved and flowed as if it were liquid, evading my grasping fingers as it sank teeth into my shoulder. Dimly, I was aware of the sound of someone running, a thin wail of terror going with them. In that second, I realized Delve had abandoned me and was fleeing back along the tunnels. That was all I knew before the camera fixed to my helmet discharged an electrical burst that lanced needles through my body and consumed my vision in a bright white blast. It was as if every tendon in my body had jolted violently. 
I bounced and clattered against the stone convulsively, and I struggled to draw breath into my lungs. Then, there was only darkness. I must have blacked out, for the next thing I remember was trying to sit up, my head pounding. My body was a shrieking mass of raw agony, my lap full of blood, my shirt hanging in tatters, and my lungs felt as if all the air had been slugged out of them. I also realized I wasn't alone. Four armed figures were standing over me, torches lancing through the damp darkness as they loaded something limp and hairy into a metal containment cage. One of the figures saw me moving and swung his torch beam into my eyes, blinding me. Stay down. Medics are on their way. Did the beep work? Yes, sir. They drew it right in. Your rig cameras did the rest. The electrical discharge knocked it right out. My brow furrowed at those words. Bait? We had been the bait. Any survivors? Bravo and Echo teams are lost. Looks like their cameras malfunctioned. Never discharged when they were attacked. Probably all the damp down here messing with the systems. One survivor present from Delta Team. He's pretty torn up. No! I tried to pull myself up using the wall, but my blood-slick fingers kept slipping off the bricks. Delve! <laughs> Get the specimen back up here ASAP. Retrieve the guns and cameras too. And the ETA on the medics? Forget the medics. We don't have the supplies to spare. You know as well as I do, nobody survives a stalker attack. Wait! I anxiously tried to stand. Wait! But they ignored me, stopping only to take my gun and the pack from my back. And then they took their caged prize and retreated the way they had come. I listened, trying to ignore the growing pain in my chest and the desperate pounding of my heart as their sounds grew steadily fainter and more distant. That was... how long ago? It's hard to say. After that, I just lay here in the dark, listening to the shadows. It's getting hard to breathe. My lungs feel like a fire is burning inside them, and my legs are so numb I'm not even sure they're still there. I hold out a secret hope that Delve might come back for me. I imagine he's just out of sight, hiding around the next bend in the tunnel, waiting until it's safe to come and get me out. If so, I hope he hurries up. There are sounds out there in the darkness, getting closer. Scurrying sounds like claws on stone. I don't think they're rats. In the darkness, I can see Kaz watching me, a sad smile on her ragged lips. She knows I let her down when she counted on me the most. I hope Delve comes back soon. The sounds are getting awfully close.
the sun creeps above the horizon, the darkness slowly fades, for now. But you will fear the darkness once again, as you remain sleepless. The No Sleep Podcast is presented by Creative Reason Media. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mikulski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for being a supportive Season Pass member and for being ever sleepless. This program is copyright 2022 by Creative Reason Media, Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.